I want you to picture a scene for me in your mind. The night closes in. The enemy in countless numbers are advancing. Our supplies are spent. Our men are all injured and weary. And there's no sign of reinforcements. It's hopeless. So often in the story of history and the unfolding story of the scriptures, we find that there are innumerable situations that are bleak, seemingly irredeemably bleak. Yet sometimes, even in a scripture like this, we don't have the same feelings that are associated with the first hearers. We know the end of the story, and so we usually think right on past what it would have felt like, what the experience would have been of those who are going through the scriptures that are enumerated to us in the pages here in Acts. We miss significant statements because we're already beneficiaries of all these promises fulfilled. But we must remember very clearly that as we read this history, at a time in the past, all of these things stood as yet unfulfilled. They were only apprehended by faith. What they experienced then and there in their time was difficulty without the same sort of consolation that we have in all of the fulfilled promises that we have The first thing that we want to focus on in our time today is verse 15 and 16. I've just termed it dying well, dying well. Verse 15 and 16. Let us read it again just so it's fresh in our minds. And Jacob went down into Egypt and he died. He and our fathers and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abram bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. Why are we told these things? Why is this included? Why would this, and not only Stephen here, but also in, in the narratives of Moses, And also later Joshua communicate the very same realities about those patriarchs as well. There is a heavy emphasis on their death. And I want to get at that just by looking at Genesis. I would hold your page there, but go to Genesis chapter 49. And beginning in verse 28, it'll be a little bit of a lengthy section. Genesis 49 verses 28 and following. And this describes one part of the discussion. Moses at length expands what's here, but since it's in summary form for us, and we might not be thinking of Genesis 49 as clearly as some of the original hearers, I think it helps us to go back In order to understand why this is here, I won't be communicating some of the difficulty. I I think of how um, Stephen, what we call telescoping, he sort of summarizes the story 
because it's told slightly differently in terms of burial in Genesis as well as uh, Joshua and Exodus. So let me just focus on the main aspect of why tell us about the patriarch's death. What does it communicate? Beginning in verse 28 of Genesis 49, it says, All these, the 12 tribes of are the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with a blessing suitable to them. That's a reference to the former context in verse and in the, the previous statements in 29. But now it says, then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah, the field and the cave that is is in it where were bought from the Hittites. Excuse me. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into his bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Why is Jacob, if we're thinking about it here, maybe in different words, why is Jacob so intent and insistent, even commanding his sons, to bury him in the land of Canaan? They're in Egypt right now. Why is he intent on this? This is the same thing that Abraham was intent on. He was buried there. Same thing that Isaac was intent on and Joseph will be after. And I think Joseph, just in this next section, stay with Genesis and listen to the words of Joseph at his death. Genesis 50, verse 22 through 26. Listen to how Joseph also says it. This will give us our answer, and it's a significant one. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land, uh, this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. The patriarchs all died in a foreign land, a land that they were sojourning, visiting. They and their fathers strongly insist on being buried in another land, the land of Canaan, They died insisting on this because they believed something major. All these major figures wanted to die well. They all were persuaded about something that they would not experience themselves. In a way, they died in faith. 
They were convinced that God would fulfill his promise to Abraham. In their dying breath, they wanted to show how even in the most in the face of the most terrible enemy that they would come against, namely death, that this in no wise would prevent God from bringing about his promises for all of their heirs, which there are many. This was not one of them. In the core of their being was lodged the word of God, even though they would die before its fulfillment. They hoped for a new day. They hoped for the promise to come to pass. And so they knew that the Lord's faithfulness would never sway or turn. They committed themselves to the grave, even with this vow of Joseph saying, God will visit you and bring you up out of the land of uh, he will bring you up out of this land to the land he swore to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. They knew the unshakable character of God's promises. So they all wanted to be buried in a land that they expected their children's children, children's children, children's children, children's children, children's children's children to be in. God had promised it until the end of the world. I do believe that's part of the promise that they will inherit though the Israel of God is expanded to include all the elect of all time, what we understand is that God had given them a land and they believed it by way of faith. They knew that no matter what, they wanted to be in a place where their sons and daughters in future times could come and visit them and thank the Lord for his promises. Their grave itself would be a testimony to God's faithfulness. <clears throat> How much greater should our confidence be? We stand way down the line of so many more fulfillments of God than they ever saw. We stand down the line. We have the testimony of Christ Jesus, the son of Abraham, whom they would have said, yeah, he's the son of Abraham, but they didn't even yet know that he would also be the son of David. Had no revelation that we have, and David's son is Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, who has accompanied or accomplished, excuse me, a decisive victory over death in a resurrection in a way that they could never comprehend, but we have seen as a fulfillment. Christ has been raised to everlasting life. Christ has been given this victory, not for himself alone, but for us. And after that fulfillment, our Christian confidence is the same. Life everlasting, resurrected from the grave. It is so fixed and should be in our minds that we ourselves hope with utter surety on our deathbed that we can say, God will visit us Two, one day I may be buried, but one day I will rise, being buried in hope just as they were. <clears throat> we say with Jesus, I believe this is John 10, I didn't write it, though I shall die, yet shall I live. That is something that should be on our burial plot. Now, I want to make a little bit of an application to burial. I think, and I would argue for all of you, that all Christians should be buried. 
bury your dead. We who trust in Christ ought to die and tell the best story. Although I wouldn't say that cremation is sinful, hear me as a qualification, I will commend to you that burial tells a better and more true story. My hope is not that my elements would be dissolved and I would live in a spiritual ethereal world forever. As we've learned in Sunday school, no, I, I expect my body to go into the ground and that body to come up out of the grave again. Burial looks forward to this further reuniting of my soul and my body. The confession and the catechism says that when our bodies die, uh, they will be laid in the ground and our spirits will be with Christ. But even there, our bodies, while in the grave, will rest united to the body of Christ. Not a throwaway thing, a thing still attached to Jesus, even in the most serious way that we're united to Christ now. <clears throat> Hear me here. My sepulcher is going to be the site, the very site of my resurrection. If it's there in Vina, which is kind of what I hope, it will be there that I come alive again. I want to know where that is. I want my kids to know where that is. <clears throat> now, listen, Christ Jesus has reaffirmed a promise in Psalm 37. The meek will inherit the earth. Think about that for a second. The meek will inherit the earth, just as the children of Abraham, everyone by faith will inherit the world. Same promise. I hope you gather. We all who are laid in the tomb in Christ tell the world of our confidence of the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Just like Abraham, Jacob, or Joseph, none of them saw the inheritance of the future land that their children would receive. So too, none of us will receive when we die the inheritance of the whole world that we will have one day in the future. We, I think, being laid in the same pattern of faith that they are laid in, say that I will inherit the promised land of the earth forever. I'm buying my plot now to say this is my ground. This is what God will give all the children of faith. This is the earth that I will inhabit for future ages unending. One day we will inherit a renovated and resurrected world and from the ends of the earth, every nation will sing to the glory of God. And so burial says, I am going to invest in this land that will continue forever. I am going to live here forever. And I'm going to show by buying a plot of land for my death. And one day God will make that into a land that I can live in forever. My My body may go into the grave, but one day Christ will come and lay death in the grave and I will live here in this world forevermore. This is Emmanuel's land and I have a stake in it. So that is dying well for the Christian. I hope you're convinced of my argument. But the time of the promise, this is where Stephen really goes. That's an extended application. The time of the promise... If you're not there, please look again in in verse 17. 
<clears throat> Notice how Stephen sets up this section about Moses and what's going to happen in his day. We'll not get through all of it, of course, <clears throat> but he begins by saying, as the time of the promise drew near, which God granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. I want to first focus on this just for a few minutes. Remember verse 5 and 6 calls out the few aspects of what that promise is. Obviously, it's, it's a land, um, but the solid confession of God to Abraham is, is first that the land would be theirs. That is the land of Canaan, not the one they're in currently. His offspring would inherit it. Okay, so that's his children. And third, that God would afflict the nation, them in that nation, another nation, for a period of 400 years until the time of fulfilling this promise. So because the confession of the Lord is sure, the first thing that we see is, is this statement means that the time where, whereby the Lord providentially set has now begun to see its fulfillment. The, the people who were not very much in number at that time start to increase and increase and increase. They're going to grow into a nation. They're going to grow into a, a large enough people to inherit a land. And so there is a, a sense of God preparing his people as they multiply. They're remembering the promises of God that are about to come to pass. They are promise this. This is one aspect. <clears throat> now, what I want to also call out is not all promises are done this way, but there is a handful whereby there is gloriously a, a time clock where God can be tested. It'd be even easier in that day to say when the 400th year would have elapsed. However, God sets himself on a particular course and in essence says, Watch me accomplish my plan. Now, <clears throat> I think it would not be good for God to disclose all of his prophetic purposes this way. It would cause much complacency in people as it did in the Thessalonians who were rebuked for their laziness in terms of waiting for a particular promise of God in their time. However, let it be known that every passage should be seen in the same frame as this one. And we learn here something more general about the nature of prophecy itself. Namely, God informs us that he has meticulously planned and fixed his work of redemption. He has fixed it. It's on a clock. It will come to pass in a particular set of time, though not all prophecy gives us the time indicator. We shouldn't act as though other promises are up for grabs in that way. They're all set and fixed. It's not as though God, God will speak as we do. Well, it's going to be 400 years, but you know, if this Pharaoh guy gets in the way, it might be 500 years, something like that. Well, I'll, I'll bring it to pass eventually. We talk like that because we are hindered from accomplishing all of our plans and promises, but God never has to struggle to fulfill what he desires to do. His promises are sure. They will not be delayed. They will arrive on schedule. 
you should have it firmly fixed in your mind that God only has a plan A. There's no plan B, no plan C, nothing like that. God's plan A is what will unfold in history. No one will thwart that. God establishes his plans and he thwarts man's plan. Psalm 33. All of God's promises are sure and foreordained before he makes anything at all. That is why your salvation is sure. That is why you can trust amidst even times of darkness and woe that God will accomplish his plans for you because his plans are as fixed as his eternal purposes in Christ of all of which he has steadily fulfilled and will continue to do whatever remains in the future. Now, I want to say one other thing. That doesn't, uh, people hear things like that and flatten humanity out to a really one plane existence that we don't exist in. This does not mean that God uh, creates robots, as it were, and we all just do whatever we have been foreordained to do in the sense of pressing buttons and getting his way. Rather, we do all the things that we've been ordained to do because God is in control of our thoughts and our desires and our actions. These are under his control and under his sway, though from our perspective, I freely put on a blue shirt today. However, it is fixed from eternity what God will do. None of these things have gotten past him or will change how my life works out. But yet all my desires and actions and will is foreordained to be what it is at a particular point in time. And God to influence and move those. It's just another aspect on which we can praise God for growing us. All of your sanctification is under the sway of God's powerful plan And that should excite you because you can look back just as I can and go, look at all the sin that God has conquered in my life. And look at all the new and fresh desires that he has born in me by his sweet and comforting foreordination of my salvation. We have a good God who has ordained all things, even to be tested as such, who always proves faithful. The last... The second to last section here, there is a pattern, which I called out in the beginning, an underdog sort of pattern in verse 18 through 22. Look at it with me. It says, so they're multiplying. The time of the promise is about to be fulfilled until, uh uh-oh, Scariness is about to happen. Until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born. He was beautiful in God's sight and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed... Pretty bleak situation, isn't it? If you, if you really put yourself there, we're told in that story that although there was an ark 
used in, in Noah's terminology. There was a basket, bitumen and pitch, put in the water. The, there was still a watching going like, I hope this is good. I hope this works out. There is a, an uneasiness and an unknowing whether or not Moses will be delivered, though it is clear that this is God's purposes. The rest of the text says, verse, verse 20, uh, he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him as, as her own son and brought him up. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and deeds. Here, in this section, <clears throat> we, we need to not quickly run to the fulfillment so much, because we know exactly what happens in Moses. We know how the story ends. It, it goes by really quickly. But <clears throat> how easy... Would, would it be for God to deliver them from what most likely is the most powerful nation on the planet at this time? How easy is redemption going to be when they are enslaved? How easy is it going to be? This is a small picture of the bigger thing that's happening. Namely, that there is what appears to be an insurmountable enemy that has come against even Moses, the deliverer of God, the Pharaoh has said, kill all your children. And they did. And some obviously were spared. The midwives were faithful, as you read. Their family was faithful until they succumbed to the pressure and then finally did expose Moses. However, there is in this moment what looks to be or what it would have felt like even to Moses' parents, like a, a, a darkness. This would be in our feeling experience, even to the person who knows God's promises and we're banking on them. In the experience, when trial comes, even if you have the best theology of suffering, nonetheless, you and I are all tempted and truly do feel, oh, the, the hopelessness that comes with those situations that maybe our lineages will be cut off. We will end as a people. If you have no children, you have no heritage. You have no more people. The people of God is going to die off and be cut off. That's what it appears to the eye. That is one of the things after that we'll be talking about. <laughs> All right, well, let's get back on track here with that slight distraction. It looks bleak. Pharaoh says, kill all the children. Moses is a child. He's exposed. But this is God's deliverer. In the Old Testament, we are informed in the Genesis narrative that his mother saw his beauty. Though Stephen emphasizes a slightly different aspect that God considered him beautiful. And that is, his appearance is a sign, a way of talking about him being born for a particular purpose, a special purpose. He is sort of well-born, as it were, to be a redeemer. That's the idea that's being communicated 
both in the Old Testament and by Stephen. The parents, as we're told in Hebrews, did not fear the edict of the king at first, though they succumbed to the pressure and exposed him. Yet all the while, the Lord's hand is on this situation. The Lord's hand delivers Moses through the waters. And I don't have time to draw it out, but we should just at least hear that this looks like an ark and is used the same word. No other place is it used other than in Noah's day. So Moses, like Noah, is delivered through the waters in an ark and is then afterward crowned with wisdom and and is mighty indeed in speech like Joseph. There's this pattern throughout of how God deals with his people through a redeemer. It's bigger than Moses, though it includes him. The Lord in every case, even in your life, you, you make the application here, but the Lord in every case in history whether on a national front or even on the family level, seems from the human vantage point to take the the flame of promise and and bring it inches away from the snuffer of evildoers and evil circumstances, putting out our hopes. But in all these things, all this accomplishes is to bend us around as a winding channel to where God has ordained us to be. <laughs> it, it, we may go through a low period or a dark period, as it were, but that's just part of the stream that God brings you in. It's not apart from your hope. It's what actually pushes you fur, further down the stream of your Christian life and, and moves you closer to your future and final hope, what God's plan is at the time that he's planned. The pattern to emerges here in Moses. Moses is born. All the children are supposed to die. It looks like this Redeemer is going to be brought out. It, It does come to its fulfillment. I encourage you to go read Matthew's account of Jesus and Herod, and I believe it's in chapter two and following, where Herod, a non Israelite king, threatened by the king to come, the ruler to come, then goes to destroy and commands all the little children, two years and younger, to be snuffed out, to hopefully put out the Hebrew people and to kill the Messiah and to prevent his reigning over them. (laughs) Though this does not succeed since Peter preaches himself in Acts chapter 2, Jesus, having ascended to the right hand of God, has been made Lord. And Christ. God has accomplished his plans through the Messiah, and Moses himself, as deliverer, prepares us to see him. Now, <clears throat> Moses is as deliverer, let's let's focus on this a little bit. So after being exposed and brought up in wisdom, this is a sort of though it's in the Egyptians' place, this is a sort of equipping for ministry. And then God raises up his desires in a particular way that we see in verse 23 and following. 23, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart 
to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. Moses desires to visit his brother. This term is important. I wish I had time to expound on it thoroughly. I just want to point out four different quick occurrences, most of which probably you'll know. This word visit denotes, when it comes from God, denotes a particular special blessing that's poured out upon God's people. And it's usually in connection with the promises he's made to his people. It's his covenant blessings. He has remembers, he remembers his covenant and visits his people. That's the sort of pattern that you see. So four occurrences. First, when God, having promised to her a promised child, visits Sarah and she conceives Isaac. Secondly, when Israel is shown signs through Aaron before the Exodus, and they, they have faith and believe that God is, has visited them and is going to deliver them. Or third, when Ruth in a foreign land and, and her mother and those who are included there hear that God has visited Israel. Namely, he has provided food so that they don't die in famine. You recognize the pattern that we've seen. Fourth, and, and the last one that I find glorious, I'll read a section of this and I prayed according to it before we began. This is Luke 1, 68 and following. Zechariah sings prophetically when John the Baptist is born and it says he's filled with the Spirit and he prophesies because uh, John the Baptist means something for the Messiah since he's the forerunner and he prepares the way for the Messiah. Listen to how he begins with the term visit. He says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. It's amazing. He says this while John John is still a wee little baby. And, And yet it is as sure as can be because the visitation is tied to God fulfilling his promises. That's the point. He has visited his people with and redeemed them. And he has raised up a horn of salvation in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hands of those who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our forefather Abraham to grant us. We could read on, and I encourage you to read that section as well. But just notice that in this section, as we focus it on Stephen and his presentation of Moses, Moses here is presented in a very favorable light. I know some of you might think about the Moses story and him killing the Egyptian and think of it as something that he did wrongly. And, you know, there's to kill somebody unjustly is wrong. However, in this case, Stephen makes it emphatically clear that he had done nothing wrong. In fact, this is 
his actions as the Redeemer sent for the people of Israel. Listen, listen to these words. There's, there's no two ways about it. And we need to maybe readjust our understanding here. It says, And seeing them, one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. If you look at the original in the Greek there, it is uh, clearly all positive. And he supposed his brother would understand that he's given salvation through their hand. <clears throat> because I'm not always the best uh, to explain things. Sometimes commentators are better, and John Calvin is like the best commentator that's ever existed in my book. And so I'm just going to read his clarity here. Listen to these words. Unless God had armed him, that is Moses, and made him puissant, I had to reinsert a new term because I didn't know that one, powerful, made him powerful, it had been a thing altogether unlawful for him to kill any man howsoever wicked he had been. It is a godly deed and praiseworthy for a man to set himself against the wicked, to defend the good against the injuries of the wicked, to bridle their violence. But it is not for a private person to punish or take vengeance. Therefore, it was unlawful for Moses to slay the Egyptians, save only inasmuch as the Lord had put the sword in his hand according to the right of his calling. But this heroical courage and nobleness of heart was the work of the Holy Spirit. It's clearly laid out in the text. Because God doth mightily show forth his power and those whom he has appointed unto great matters that they may be able to fulfill their function. Listen to this. In sum, Stephen meaneth, that Moses was even offered to be the minister of their deliverance when the day was at hand according to the covenant made with Abraham. So I, I say, as we saw in Joseph, who was sort of a representative of Israel and made a redeemer to save them, dealt with differently than the rest because he was to fulfill a certain function. That's the same way we see it with Moses and also with Christ. Or if we think about it just for a minute, we'll say David. David has particular permission granted to him to slay the wicked, to kill thousands of Philistines, and to lay them in the dust of the, of the grave. That is because he is anointed to be a particular kind of person that you and I are not made to be in the same sense. He is made to be in the office of king, yet that doesn't make me uh, have the sword in the same way. Same thing, I would say, and I've argued before, that we are all prophets of God. And Jesus yet is this greater prophet and speaks authoritatively as well as the apostles in a way that I don't have the authority to speak. And insofar as those actions are in accord with the office. And this thing is not ethereal. It's not something that we judge. It's something that God actually does. He places men in the role of prophet, priest, and king in the Old Testament. And Jesus fulfills all of these in like way. Moses here supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. He had made them, he had made him a type of king, a type of redeemer, but they did not understand. 
Those are biting words. If you're listening to the sermon and you hear Stephen and, and reflecting on Moses' understanding and there is an utter blindness in the people of Israel, it must have cut them deeply because they want to claim Moses as their own, yet he shows them again and again that they had misunderstood. They were blind to the message of Moses. Moses himself stands to condemn them. And thus they need to repent. That is the thrust of this sermon. And that's what's going to get him killed at the end. Now, lastly, hard hearts resisting the Holy Spirit, verse 25 through 29. Verse 25 through 29, reads, uh, well, we read 25, verse 26, and on the following day, after having slayed the one, to them, appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you're brothers. Why do you wrong each other? Notice this, but the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian where he became the father of two sons. I would just say that <clears throat> there is a parallel too. I don't know how much to read into this, but Joseph had two sons in the foreign land just like Moses did by the way. Now, beyond that, let us notice what the text clearly says. Moses appears to his people to handle a justice issue. Salvation includes multiple aspects. I hope you realize that. Salvation includes uh, not only reconciliation with God, but it actually includes reconciliation with one another. Our justice in the midst of our people. Uh, Salvation includes dealing with men's sins so that each one of us take hold of confession appropriately and repentance appropriately. There's no Christian life. There's no Christian without repentance in an ongoing way. That's not just to say I'm sorry. It's actually act differently. New obedience to God. The person who doesn't progress in repentance is no Christian at all over time. Stephen calls attention to the one who particularly is guilty, the one wronging his neighbor. You see, the problem here with the man is deeper than that he was just wronging his neighbor. And he, as you can tell, is a symbol of who Stephen's getting at. Those who would be hearing him, who are uncircumcised in heart, who are deaf and blind. He is having this internal sinfulness that is he is under the sway of. And so the man who has come to save them He thrusts aside, and therefore his conclusion at the end is you've always been resisting the Holy Spirit, and you've you've killed and resisted all the prophets. You don't listen to any of them. And he asks the question, and 
There's the tie again. Ruler and judge over us. Who made you this? The answer we know is God did. You're rejecting your ruler just as they had rejected Christ. Stephen, (laughs) I feel in this sentence is just like turning the knife. This is the message over and over again in Acts. You have crucified your own Messiah. He has been made ruler over you. And he's proven it by his resurrection. He's now at the right hand of God. You you must repent quickly or judgment will come on you quickly. And it did in 70 AD. They were blind, deaf, resisting Moses and the Holy Spirit was raising him up. And further, they don't want him to be anything because their redemption meant dealing also with their sin. That's what they didn't want. They're fine with their sin. I, I'm okay with that. Like I, I'm mad at this guy. I have plenty of reasons why this is okay to just go on in my sin. They wouldn't handle this. So what we need to understand, church, that as God's people, God doesn't just deal with the legal aspect of our being made right with him. He does. That's called justification, whereby by faith, apart from anything we do, we're counted as righteous because Christ is completely and wholly righteous. He obeyed all of God's laws to the jot and tittle. And when we trust in him, we get his righteousness. And when we trust in him, he also gets our sinfulness, even though it's sort of uh, in a way that's sometimes hard for us to make sense of. He died on the cross in order to pay for our sin. He gets all of our sinfulness on the cross and bears it in his body. And we are counted Counted legally, not, not, not infused with righteousness or something like that, as the Catholics say. We're counted as righteous, counted as not guilty. Okay, so that's true. But what I'm calling attention to is Jesus comes, just as Moses did, and will be played out in the history of Israel. He comes not just to deal with that aspect, the legal aspect of our sin, but our ongoing sin nature. He has come to deal with our unrighteousness now. It is not a part of us that will enter into eternity. And he's working on it now in this present time. So it is true that in a sense, in a real sense, we have died with Christ and now We are to kill whatever remains of sin in us. Justice, if we want to sum up the term justice, our ongoing life in God's world with God's people and and beyond, is what is justice is a constituent part, an essential part of God's kingdom. Therefore, he as our savior also calls us to repentance in mistreating our neighbor and acting wrongly toward them. Jesus is about biblical, not what we hear in the culture today, not equal outcome garbage. Jesus is about biblical justice, reconciliation, and ongoing and increasing peace. 
Remember Isaiah? To us a child is born, a son is given, and on his shoulders will be the government and of his kingdom and of peace. There will be no end. Why? Why? Well, first of all, he reigns. Second of all, that changes you. That's why it increases, because you change. Peace in this place in Vina, I pray 50 years from now, is uh, way closer to heaven on earth in this sense that we have grown into the lawful treating of one another according to what God has said in his word. It's a crucial aspect about God's kingdom. When God's kingdom comes in Jesus, justice is something that he promotes. I I just leave you to Isaiah, the work of the Redeemer and the King who comes. I believe this is Isaiah 41 or 2. It's right in the beginning. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and he will not grow weary until justice is is at the ends of the earth. That's what he's going to make abound in his kingdom, which is beyond the church, though it is crucial for us because we're, we're the place that it happens primarily. And the promise of the new covenant is this, not that we're not under law anymore. We're not under the condemnation of the law. We actually are, are, are uh, the, the law is no longer on tablets of stone. It's actually written on our hearts. And we have the spirit of Christ to cause us to walk in his ways. That's why when we are saved, we now then are to embrace the movements of the Holy Spirit. Okay, I want to talk like that. And I also want to qualify myself. This is the very last thing I'll say is the movement of the Holy Spirit. You'll hear those words at the very end. You're always resisting the Holy Spirit. And guess what? Those who are part of the progressive church today who would indict all of us for saying homosexuals or are outside the kingdom of God, uh, those who are in the trans group are outside the kingdom of God and need repentance and can enter into the kingdom of God. They want to say, you're always resisting the Holy Spirit. They want to misuse these sorts of words. What we should understand is the movements of the Holy Spirit are always in accord with God's word. It's always in accordance with his promises. It's not, they're not separable. The movement of the Holy Spirit actually inspired the words and the fulfillment of those in our lives. So justice, repentance, reconciliation. When I say movement of the Spirit, I'm not talking about something ethereal, spiritual that you and I can't define because it's so vague. I'm talking about the Ten Commandments. I'm talking about us taking from the Old Testament and saying, that's my law. That's, that's what God has given so that I would know how to live in his world, how I would understand his moral character and the ongoing commands of Scripture. All of those things have been fulfilled in Christ and handed down to us. He is our ruler and our judge, and we are subjects to his kingdom, which means we're also subjects to his law. And that only happens by his spirit. You and I in our flesh can't obey. But we must not stop there. Most Christians that that I know uh, stop there. You can obey. Your will's been freed from its slavery to sin. You've been given the Holy Spirit so that you can obey. That's the freedom God has given you. 
And in that freedom is peace. So church, live into all of God's commandments so that you might have ongoing and increasing peace with one another and in this place. Let us pray.